previously on Cry in the Moon's Light. After Milady uses the dagger of dark silver to kill the Black Wolf, they are forced to flee as an angry mob of villagers is hunting the werewolf. The carriage driver stays behind and tells the villagers it was the Black Wolf who murdered their people, and it was Seth who saved them from the pack. But it is too late as the Hessians are waiting to ambush Seth and Milady on the beach. Colonel Volker uses a silver musket ball to kill Seth before anyone can stop him. Seth is laid to rest in the cemetery of the abandoned church. The travelers arrive, and the Jabarni gives Milady a new purpose. Welcome to A Cry in the Moon's Light. Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Alan McGill. I'm the author who created this story, and I'll also be your narrator. And now, on with our show. Chapter 14, The Silent Road. A day after the funeral, we left Castle Parleme. Breakfast that morning was quiet and somber. Nobody was in good cheer. Milady, Lord Parleme, and Barkslow ate together. I decided to wait outside. I just didn't feel like sitting at the table. I resented Lord Parleme for what he did as much as what he didn't do. He ordered his men to capture, not kill William. He suspected the king's order, the one Colonel Volker was carrying, was a fake. But he couldn't risk confronting Volker. Instead, he waited until Volker found a reason to leave the castle before he acted. He was going to lock William in one of the catacombs under the castle. He would wait for Volker to wipe out the rest of the pack. He hoped Volker would leave these lands once the pack was destroyed. Volker would never know William was the beast he was looking for, and William would no longer have a pack. So William attacked the farmer. He hoped that Volker's reaction would be to hunt down the predator believing it was close by, and that's exactly what Volker did. Once Volker and his men left the castle, he could help us escape. He knew my lady was looking for an opportunity to leave. After we were out in the open, William and his pack could come after us. This would also be his chance to kill Seth if Volker didn't get him first. Either way, he would have his revenge. He thought Seth had died the first time when he dragged him off into the forest, but the travelers intervened. Seth never let William know he was still alive. He remained with the travelers even after William butchered his family. He had no idea Seth survived his original attack until he saw him in the alley that night in Marcel. He still tried to kill her again as we fled Marcel. He dropped a tree to stop the carriage so his pack could kill us, leaving him to deal with her. But Seth showed up and defeated his pack, preventing him from hurting her. He had to sulk back to the castle. As luck would have it, she came right to him later that night. But she was protected there, so he had to find a way to get her out in the open. The poor farmer paid the price. 
Lord Parlamay should have stopped William a long time ago. He knew everything William had done. All the murders in Marcel, in the valley, all the carnage and suffering he had caused. Parlamay did nothing to stop him. I just couldn't sit with them and eat. Milady was part of polite society now, so she forced herself to dine at his table. But it was more than I could handle. Maybe it wasn't completely Lord Parlamay's fault. There wasn't much that could stop William anyway. Lord Parlamay knew the secret of silver. But it would be hard to kill your own child. The Hessians were the real wild card. They were unpredictable and determined. Nothing was going to stop them from killing the creature. They just killed the wrong one. It's just a little hard to understand how he could just look the other way, especially after William killed Seth's family. And then to burn the village down to hide the crime. He also learned Seth was still alive. After I told the men from Marcel the story on the road, one of the townsfolk rode back to the castle to tell them everything. Like us, Lord Parlamay tried to reach Colonel Volker, but he was too late. As my lady and I were about to depart the castle to finish our journey to Trevor Doe, Lord Parlamay and Barkslow walked out to the carriage. My lady stood at the door. Lord Parlamay again told her how sorry he was. He was sincere. After all, he lost a son. And not just the other day, but back when William first became a wolf. It not only turned him into an animal, it intensified his dark side. He was lost when that happened, even if Parlamay didn't want to admit it. She gave him her condolences for his loss, even though she hated William now and resented Lord Parlamay for his part in all of this. He was still a grieving father. My lady always carried herself properly, as any lady should. She may not have been born of noble birth, but she was no less a lady. He wished her well and opened the door for her. Once she was in, he walked up a couple of steps and looked up at me. Take care of her. Safe travels, he said. I nodded and tipped my hat to him. We pulled out, heading toward the main gate. As I turned, Parlamay and Barkslow were ascending the castle stairs. Just before they went inside, Barkslow stopped and watched us departing. As I looked back at him, I thought I saw a flash of amber. It was quick and then gone. I squinted and looked at him more intently, but there was nothing. I must have imagined it, but it was like seeing Seth's blue eyes in the forest days ago when I first picked her up, just a quick flash and then gone. Barkslow grinned and waved. I raised my hand hesitantly back to him as he disappeared inside the castle. They went inside as the door closed with a loud bang. This was something I didn't know if it was my imagination, paranoia, or something else. I didn't know what to think. But I didn't have any fear at that moment, and I quickly forgot about it. We made our way across the drawbridge and through the village, 
pushing our way to the road between the fields, heading east until we reached the forest again. After half a day's ride, we made it to the seaside beach where Seth was killed. It was different somehow. It was daylight this time, but that isn't what made it look different. There was a subdued aura about the place now. We weren't in a rush, but we didn't stop either. Neither of us wanted to relive that night. If there had been another road, I would have taken it. We made our way past the beachfront and continued on to Port Calibre. We reached the port a little before sunset and stopped. This was the last real town along the way. I watered the horses and got them some oats at the library. My lady decided to take a walk to the water and watch the ships come in. Normally, I would have been a little more protective, but I could keep an eye on her as the library was next to the seaport. As I watched her walking toward the docks, I remembered the first time I saw her take a stroll. We had just come through the forest to stop at one of the openings. She walked out into the open field with such confidence and pride. Seeing her now, it was as if she was lost. She was only stretching her legs from the carriage. There was no joy in her movements. After a little while, she returned to the carriage and got back in. She didn't look at me, and she never spoke. But I knew she wanted to go. So I finished with the horses, climbed back up into the driver's seat, and got us going again. We left Port Calibre, returning to the road still heading east. Just as before, it took us into the forest as we left the sea. This was the last leg of the journey until we reached Trevor Doe. The sun started to give way to the night, and this part of the forest was filled with small and medium-sized rocks. The moon really accented the moss that covered each rock. It was a beautiful thing to see. We drove all through the night. Occasionally I would stop and give the horses a rest. I would pet them and give them more oats. This gave them energy and kept them happy. It was nice, but we just didn't have a bond like Arca and Killian. The forest wasn't as scary anymore. The sounds of night became melodic and soothing. Crickets filled the air with their constant chirping, and the frogs' throaty songs carried through the trees. The sound was so loud in some parts, I figured there must be a million of them. During the stops to rest the horses, my lady never got out of the carriage. I would check on her through the windows and find her in the same position. She would be sitting up staring out the window, not at anything in particular, just staring. We drove all through the night until the next day. The dawn came slowly, bringing with it shades of purple and pink across the horizon. It had been a long ride from Port Calibre, but we finally broke free of the forest. This was open country now, full of tall grasses and meadows, rolling hills and little streams. Occasionally I would see a small pond in the low places. This was a big difference from the forest. In this open country, we could see for miles on end. The road continued east and eventually took us along a river. The river came from the mountains far off in the distance, their snow peaks melting from the last of the fall sun. 
By the end of the day, we reached the city of Trevor Doe. It was a big bustling city in the shadow of those snow-capped mountains, a major trade route connecting our country to the east. When we got closer, I could see more roads leading into and out of the city. There was plenty of travel now, too. Our journey didn't have a lot of other carriages. There were a few riders on horseback, but this dark forest was a lonely place. Now, in this city, there were carriages all over the place. Everyone had a horse and buggy. There were three or four carriage companies like mine, too, each providing transportation to the citizens of the city. Those who didn't have carriages were on horseback or walking. Men in tricorn hats and women in bonnets. Everything was proper here. The street we were on led us to a river. We turned onto the next street that followed beside the river until we found a bridge that crossed to the other section of the city. The river didn't sit idle. It was a highway of commerce. Boats were coming up river from the sea, bringing their haul in the bows of their vessels. As we drove down the waterfront street, we encountered stores. The streets here were paved with cobblestones, too, which made a loud echo as the horses trotted along. Merchants were ending their day, sidewalk vendors taking everything in for the night. Every now and then, one would stop sweeping long enough to watch us go by. They navigated us through the street to the center of town. From there, we turned back north and across a large stone bridge that spanned the Great River. A small village existed on the other side. This section of the city was a little different from the first. Here there were rows of sawed houses with straw roofs. The first part of the city was lined with Tudor homes. Those were the wealthier homes. This was the working class section where the peasants lived. Children played in the streets while parents tended large gardens. Many had small barns in the backyard chickens and other livestock grazing and meandering about. I could smell fresh bread from a local bakery. A butcher shop, already closed for the day, had pigs hanging in the window. Vegetable and fruit markets supplied fresh produce to the neighborhood. I could see a library at the end of the road. There were several horses tied to some posts in the front. A farrier was putting shoes on a few of them. Stable boy was hauling bales of hay inside trying to finish up for the evening. A local pub was on the corner. The sound of music and festivities coming from inside as we passed. Neighborhood folks coming and going through the front door, each with a look of joy on their face. The road split, with one fork continuing along the side of the river and the other heading up to the mountains. I took the mountain road as my lady directed. We continued to the outskirts of this village until we reached a house near the end of the road. It was a quaint little home, purple flower boxes on every window. Not an expensive home, but well kept and neat. A gate was in the middle of the small fence that lined the yard. Several buggies were parked on the street in front of the house. A small crowd of people were gathered on the porch. There were men and women sitting about and standing, all dressed in black. They watched our approach intently. We pulled up to the front, stopped and set the brake. I hopped down from the driver's seat and opened the carriage door. My lady stepped out wearing her red cape. Lord Parliament was good enough to have it washed and pressed. 
so she looked as radiant as the night I picked her up. Her hood was up and she was carrying a handkerchief. I grabbed her bag and held the gate for her. She paused just before she went in. After she gathered herself, she picked her head up and moved her shoulders back, correcting her posture. She strolled through the gate with pride and confidence. I knew she was in pain, but I was the only one that knew why. I shut the gate behind me and carried her bag to the front porch. Several of the people greeted her with a smile and a hug. Her grandmother's condition had worsened. These were the friends and relatives who had come to say their goodbyes. Nobody noticed me as I set her bag down. They hadn't realized I was there, so I turned and headed for the carriage. There was so much I would have liked to have said, but it seemed pointless now. As I looked back to the house, my lady turned her head to look at me. Our eyes met for a moment. She looked to the ground as a tear fell. I knew she cared for her grandmother, but that tear wasn't for her. She was close to her grandmother and sad that she was sick, but her grandmother was still alive. She would be able to spend some time with her. No, that tear wasn't for her grandmother. I pulled down the street and turned the carriage around, and as the carriage rolled back past the house, I could see in the bedroom window. My lady had entered the room. An elderly woman was lying in a bed with a blanket pulled up to her chin. When the woman saw my lady, her eyes lit up. My lady pulled off her hood and sat at the edge of the bed. She leaned down and gave her grandmother a hug and kiss on the cheek. She held her grandmother's hand as they spoke for the first time in many years. The carriage rolled down the street and passed the windows so I could no longer see. I could leave now, as I was no longer needed. She was finally where she needed to be. My heart was heavy, but I was glad to deliver her to her destination. She was able to spend time with a person she truly loved before it was too late, even if it was just for a little while. I guess you could say this applied to Seth, too. The entire journey weighed heavy on my soul. I left the neighborhood the way I came in. I went back across the stone bridge and proceeded into the center of the city. I stopped at the town square and looked back at the road that led back to the dark forest. With no intentions of going that way, I continued straight. I left Trevor Doe deliberately taking the canyon road through the mountains. I wasn't going back through the dark forest again. The mountain pass was slow and cold, even colder than the forest. It also took me three extra days to reach home. My city wasn't as big as Trevor Doe, but it was a welcome sight. I went straight to the company library. The moment I pulled in, my quartermaster was waiting. I had been several days overdue and he was nervous. Not really for me, but the company property. Stories of a carriage rider having trouble through the dark forest had already made its way back to the city. Some of the stories were really embellished. Others were pretty close to the truth, but none of them mentioned a werewolf. The quartermaster wanted to know every detail. I tried to explain as best I could, but it just didn't come out right. Nothing I said made a lot of sense. When he saw that Arca and Killian were not with me, I was forced to tell him they were dead. 
it was a little hard to tell him one was killed by a giant black wolf and the other shot as men were trying to kill a werewolf. So I lied and said they died from a disease that spread through the valley. That was sort of true. He really didn't care why they died. I'm not even sure he believed they were dead. The look he gave me suggested he thought I sold them. As far as he was concerned, I never should have gone through the wild country. So he fired me. I wasn't that upset about losing my job. I grabbed my musket from the driver's seat, then went to my quarters. I grabbed what little stuff I had there and cleared out. After that, I was never able to hold a job for very long. Word travels fast in the courier business. Losing two lead horses of Arca and Killian's quality is a career killer. Moving from city to city, I stayed to the northern part of our country, avoiding the areas to the south and especially anywhere near the dark forest. There was always a job cleaning stables. Didn't pay that well, but it was enough for me to get a place to stay and something to eat. If the work was good, I had enough to drink. For a long time, I suffered from nightmares. Sleep became harder to come by. I started to use my supper money to buy ale, and if it was a good week, whiskey. At first it put me to sleep, but that became an excuse and my drinking got worse. I would enter a town, get a job at the stables or some rich folks farm. Sometimes they would give me a bunk in the barn, and this gave me more money for bread and ale. Didn't take long for me to get fired again and again. It's hard to keep a job when you're drunk all the time. But it was the only thing that numbed the pain. As the months passed, the memories of that journey began to fade. The bodies in the alley, the black wolf, the pack, a werewolf, all started to feel like a story and not something that actually happened. Despite all of that, I never forgot her. If I closed my eyes... I could smell the perfume she wore that first night. That hauntingly sweet, pleasant aroma. The way she glided down the steps of her mansion and got into the carriage. The way her cape flowed dramatically behind her when she walked. Or the memory of her walking through the meadow under the moonlight amongst the flowers. Those were the pleasant moments of the ride. After that, it all started to get worse. It seemed like I was always on edge. Although this was many months ago, I have always been sad for her, but I never forgot her, nor did I forget the story she told. Thank you for joining me on this episode of A Cry in the Moon's Light. Original music by Joseph McDade. You can support the show by making a donation to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Alan McGill. Our creative spotlight is a shout out to Matilda Nova Robinson. Hi, Matilda. Matilda is a sweet little girl recovering from brain surgery. A global compilation of artists have put together some great music where all the proceeds will go to Matilda's medical bills. Help support Matilda and get your copy today. You can download this music 
at LadenRobinson.bandcamp.com forward slash album forward slash artists dash four dash Matilda. Pick up your copy today. You will not be disappointed. Next time in our final episode. Several months pass. A carriage driver loses his job after the death of his two lead horses. Near broke, he finds odd jobs and uses the story of their adventures to get drinks in pubs. But his service is required one more time. What has happened to Milady? What service must the carriage driver now perform? Join us for the conclusion of A Cry in the Moon's Light. This podcast is the creation of Alan McGill. Copyright 2020. All rights reserved.